I think the common sort of narrative or story out there that when it comes to farming and growing food, it's either farmland or it's woods or it's set aside. And I, what I'm most excited about are the, the ways of farming that can incorporate all the functions of a pasture, all the functions of a woodland, and then support pollinators and wildlife. Welcome to the 261st installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, regenerative agriculture, regional food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. At its most basic, silvopasturing is a system of integrating livestock grazing with wooded habitat. Livestock and woods have a mixed history, with overgrazing often resulting in wrecked habitat. But managed rotational grazing has shown great promise for balancing farming and habitat improvement. Ecologists are excited by the potential this system holds for giving farmers an economic incentive to preserve healthy timber and control invasive species. This holds special promise in areas of the upper Midwest where oak savanna habitat, which is open meadows interspersed with trees, once dominated much of the region, but which has been all but completely replaced by row crop fields and development as well as decimated by invasive species. And on an August morning, Dana Burtness wanted to make one thing crystal clear. Good silvopasturing management does not entail simply turning animals out amongst the trees and forgetting about them, especially on a day like this. A steady, drought-breaking downpour was in progress, making the soil vulnerable to damage caused by livestock activity. While leading a wet group of Practical Farmers of Iowa Field Day participants past Nettle Valley Farms grazing paddocks and down into a wooded valley, Burtness described the careful rotational system she and her husband, Nick Nowen, used to raise heritage breed hogs. The farm is near Spring Grove in the heart of southeast Minnesota's Driftless region, and not surprisingly, it's extremely hilly and wooded. The marginal nature of the land made it affordable for Burtness and Nowen when they came to the area seven years ago. By using portable fencing and frequent movement of the hogs, along with innovative direct marketing techniques, they've been able to draw economic value from these owned and rented acres. It's taken adaption as well. For example, on this day, the hogs were holed up in a barn that's part of Nettle Valley's so-called wagon wheel hub system which consists of centering the grazing paddocks around the main structure like the spokes of a wagon wheel. By utilizing livestock to control invasive species in these woods, Burtness and Nowen have gained a greater appreciation for the ecological benefits of sustaining an oak savanna habitat. That's why one of the tour participants was Karen Chokola, a pollinator conservation planner and partner biologist for the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Pollinators are in major peril these days with exposure to pesticides, chronic disease, and loss of habitat threatening the viability of a class of animals that's responsible for every third bite of food. Jokola, who is a CSA vegetable farmer herself, is recruiting farmers in the Driftless region who are interested in developing and supporting pollinator habitat. Supported by the Wildlife Conservation Society, the Xerxes Society, Practical Farmers of Iowa, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Chokola is helping farmers optimize habitat in places like remnant woods. Chokola is especially excited about working with Nettle Valley, where the enhancement involves using a combination of invasive species removal and seeding of pollinator-friendly grass and forb species on the forest floor. Those grasses and forbs will benefit pollinators as well as provide forage for livestock, which in turn can help control the return of invasive species. While taking shelter on a porch during a torrential rainstorm, Burtness and Chokola describe how working lands conservation can help balance 
profitable farming with restoration of wildlife habitat. Burton has started out describing Nettle Valley's system of raising hogs and how they've had to adapt to produce livestock on this marginal land. So instead of the pigs being purely on pasture, so just out in the middle of a field surrounded by electric fencing with their shade and shelter and feeders and waters and that entire setup being mobile, um, we center our pastures around the the pig hub or um, the pig barn, which is permanent in place, and then we um, move the pastures around it. So if you sort of envision the spokes of a wagon wheel, um, the spokes are the pasture paddocks, and then the hub is uh, the barn in the middle of it. Mm. And that, in our experience, especially at our scale, this year we're finishing about 75 hogs, just gives us a lot more flexibility when it comes to farming with soil health and farmer happiness and livestock happiness all in balance. Mm. And that's like, this is a good example today. We're getting a downpour, thankfully, because we've been in a drought. But if they were out there right now, they'd be doing a lot of damage to the soil, probably. Yes, they'd be liquefying the soil, especially with a heavy, heavy downpour. When it's just a little bit of rain, you know, quarter inch, half an inch, um, especially when it's been so dry, mm-hmm. they don't really do all that much. They focus on grazing. But in a downpour like this, they'll immediately try to start making a wallow. And that's what we want to stay away from. So right now, the pigs, as we speak, are in their um, pig barn in a deep bedded system, snuggled up in the, uh, snuggled up in the hay. Yeah, and they look very happy. <laughs> a lot of this is, you have a combination of rented land and owned land here that you're farming, and, but a lot of it is what people would, just driving by, call marginal land. It's not prime corn, soybean land. There's a lot of wood, woods, wooded land here, very steep land. The kind of system that you're using, the civil pasturing system, must be a key way to get some, frankly, economic value out of that land. Exactly, that's a great way to put it. And, and as a beginning farmer, we, that was the only kind of land we could afford. Mm-hmm. Um, we would have never been able to get prime um, tillable land, especially since we had to go through the FSA um, funding timeline, which took half a year. No, no uh, seller is going to wait around for that to happen. So it's uh, for a beginning farmer, it's who wants to own land. It's a good way of getting your foot in the door, getting started with livestock, um, especially ruminants on quote unquote marginal land. There's a lot you can do to thin out the woods, which is what we've been doing. Um, it's an, a sort of uh, oaks, oak and elm savanna remnant, um, and we've been clearing it out with using forestry mowing. And uh, then our incubates have been using their ruminants to clear out the, the hillside. So eventually we'll have 67 acres of pasture and then silvopasturable woods. Um, right now it's, it's, we're, we're getting there. We're not there yet. Describe the forestry mowing. The system that you're doing. What, what, what's that all about? For anyone listening, I highly recommend you go onto YouTube and look up um, some forestry mowing videos. It's essentially a, a mulcher on the front of a skid steer, and it can go through and just mulch right to the ground any sort of multiflora rose or honeysuckle mm-hmm. bushes or prickly ash or even small box elders or dead logs on the ground. Um, there's some forestry mulchers that are powerful enough that, not that you'd want it to do this, but can mulch up a tea post just to give you a sense of the, the, the power. So we hired a local for 175 bucks an hour 
to go through and do a pretty fine mulch of ev- anything anything undesirable. So they'll keep small apple trees or a small oak, but um, and then leave the the largest trees alone. But then yeah, mulch to the ground everything else. Obviously, you're getting rid of some of the invasive species. And well, what are some of the other benefits to that system? Yeah, we're getting rid of the invasive species. Then we are also uh, replant or planting a, a shady pasture mix from Albert Lee seeds. We've got a lot more forage coming in. And um, also, it's just more enjoyable to be able to see through the woods and walk through the woods without being just scratched to heck by multiflora rose and other species. Allows more sunlight to come down so that uh, natives and spring ephemerals in the seed bank can start to flourish. Because I don't know if you've ever walked around in a woods just choked out with honeysuckle. Not much is growing beneath it. And so that, that can lead to a lot of erosion as well. And so... This is hopefully reducing erosion, increasing habitat for pollinators, increasing our enjoyment of it, probably increasing the value of it as well, and then obviously um, provides forage for livestock. This Xerxes Society project, uh, Karen described it a little bit, it sounds like a really interesting way to kind of integrate kind of that working lands concept a little bit with what you're doing here. Why were you... uh why are you interested in this? I think the common sort of narrative or story out there that when it comes to farming and growing food, it's either farmland or it's woods or it's set aside, po- pollinator habitat. And I, what I'm most excited about are the, the ways of farming that can incorporate all the functions of a pasture, all the functions of a woodland, and then support pollinators and wildlife. And I think it's possible. And maybe it means it's not the most primo pasture for, for wildlife, but maybe all the be- all the other benefits, maybe you're harvesting other things from the woods like timber or firewood or medicinal herbs. Um, hopefully someday I would love to see the government support um, working lands um, that that support livestock and pollinators through some sort of subsidy program to help maybe with the reduced quote-unquote yields or, or efficiency, but all the other ecosystem services that are coming out of that. So I'm excited because this installation is right by the road, so I'm really hoping that uh, natural resource conservation professionals can come by, other farmers can come by, foresters. I think a lot of folks, a lot of foresters have been burned by people just putting the cows in the woods and forgetting about them, and I want to be able to illustrate that we can we can do all of these things at once and it can be good for everybody and everything involved. Yeah, you bring up a, g- a good point that you had brought up earlier was natural resource professionals, they're not real thrilled about livestock in woods in particular, but when they think about hogs in woods, they're horrified. Yeah. <laughs> and in some ways, rightly so. For instance, if I had my hogs, if I had 75 hogs out on a oak savanna remnant hillside right now without enough of a way to take them off of it. Yeah, it would liquefy and it would be bad. And that's one of the reasons why we switched to the wagon wheel hub mode. But I think with flexible mobile infrastructure, trailers, portable electric fencing, uh, it's much more possible to multi-species graze and then flash graze. For instance, we're excited to set up a laneway from our barn down to the oaks if it's a good acorn year. Mm -hmm. If it's a good acorn year and it's dry, we'll flash graze them through the woods to uh, pick up all the acorns and um, do just a tiny bit of um, clearing of the of the woods so it's it's possible but it, it just has to be all these different kinds of livestock and kinds of grazing have to all be tools in the toolbox but it does bug me when we are locked out of funding programs because we're raising pigs on pasture like mm-hmm. it's thus far I have not even been able to get access to fencing 
cost share from from equip through equip or watering um just because it's people see pastured pigs and it's like well pigs don't graze they're not a grazing animal so our programs don't apply and i i would love to help show that um yes there's you, it's possible it's possible to do it. it's more work than a sheep or a goat or a, a cow but um yeah we can do it Next, Karen Jokla talked to me about the key role farms like Nettle Valley can play in providing pollinator habitat. It turns out bees and other key insects don't just rely on open meadows for survival. Wooded habitat is also critical. Yeah, the Driftless area is this really unique um, part of the region because it covers Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, or at least a certain portion of those, that area that has um, not seen glaciers. And it because of the the carved nature of the geology with the trout streams um, and all this topography in the area. Uh, it has a lot of different ecological niches. There's a, it's a hot spot for biodiversity, for all kinds of biodiversity, plant and animals, um, and particularly pollinators. It's also an important corridor for pollinators, and there's a lot of degraded but also remnant habitat in the Driftless area that's um, with a little effort of enhancement or restoration can really be improved and enriched and serve pollinators moving through this area, uh, especially imperiled pollinators, specialists. Yeah. So can you describe a little bit about the project you're doing here with on Nettle Valley Farm, uh, what, what we're doing here? Sure. So uh, I'm here working with Nettle Valley Farm. They're one of many farmers in the Driftless area that we're working with on a two-year grant that's supported by the Wildlife Conservation Society. And it's a grant that uh, was co-written by uh, the Xerces Society, Practical Farmers of Iowa, and the Fish and Wildlife Service. And we're looking to recruit landowners and farmers to enhance habitat for imperiled pollinators and insects in the Driftless area. So Nettle Valley came to mind. I had already offered them some technical assistance in the past, and then when this grant opportunity came up, it seemed like a really great opportunity to to do some work here. They have a, a great platform to amplify the message of conservation in working lands. What we're going to do, we haven't yet implemented it, is to do some forestry mowing in part of their... Uh, Savannah Valley, um, about four acres of forestry mowing over the winter, and then in the spring or maybe even in the fall of, of 2022, we'll do a native understory planting on those four acres. And we hope that that unit will also be grazed by ruminants, um, but probably on a, on a lighter stocking rate, uh, maybe more quick turnaround, sort of a, a conservation grazing model a little less production oriented, but also still supporting livestock while supporting native pollinator conservation. And also this particular unit is adjacent to other silvopasture units on the farm. Uh, and so I suspect there, there's some habitat connectivity that will create there. Even if other adjacent units have more of a introduced understory, there's still a lot of functional space that's similar that other wildlife can use, other um, pollinators can use, and maybe there'll be some seed dispersal, dispersal from the native to non-native. Anyway, it's just a really great space to try out an experimental approach that merges pollinator and insect conservation with grazing lands. Mm. Having the ruminants graze that 
benefits the farmer because it's it's a productive area. They're not just taking it out of production. But does that benefit, like, would that help control invasive species as well to keep that open a little bit? Mm-hmm. And that's one of the primary conservation tactics in the driftless area. We could go and, and plant or reconstruct some prairie units. That would definitely be helpful. But in the driftless area itself, really invasive species management is one of the key things we can do to remove those invasive species that don't host as many insects and to bring forth that, that native seed bank that's, that's just waiting underneath to be released. Um, that can support all of these specialists. So One thing you mentioned that I thought was interesting was when people think of pollinator habitat, they think of an open meadow, but you're trying to uh, uh, convince them that maybe that's not always the case. Yeah, so a lot of people do have that association of flower, plant flowers for pollinators, you know, and then they think of a wildflower meadow. But pollinators really exist in all of our native ecosystems. They uh, might use certain areas for just one part of the season. They might for foraging for flowers or, um, you know, uh, butterflies and moths are pollinators as well. And their larval stages, like caterpillars, feed on vegetative material. And a lot of our native trees host these caterpillars. Um, So just for example, I think some of our cherry species and our oaks can host three to 400 different species of moths and, and, um, and butterflies. And uh, so that in itself is pollinator conservation, promoting those kinds of trees in our environment. And of course, some of those flower, like the cherry trees, create a a forage that bees can go to. Um, And then that, of course, after the bees have visited, then it creates fruit for other wildlife. Um, So yeah, we're still learning a lot about how trees support bees, especially. It's it's, a... it's an area that's a little harder to sample. Uh, you can imagine trying to climb up into trees to sig- figure out who's visiting in the canopy is a little more tricky than, you know, netting in a prairie. Yeah. Uh, so we're, there's a lot of really interesting research coming out on um, trees and, and pollinators. But around here, uh, our savanna habitats are essential for pollinators because they can support that forage element, the nesting requirements in terms of um, whether they're nesting in the ground or in old woody stems or or snags of trees. Um, There's also a a pesticide refuge element in some of these areas. Usually those are parts of farms or in the farming landscape that don't get as much um, pesticide drift in them. Uh, and then the other thing is that forested areas or savanna areas can create habitat corridors or connectivity um, to disperse uh, wildlife as well as invertebrates. I know a lot of maybe people who are very interested in pollinator uh, habitat and, and really concerned about the problems that invertebrates are having and, and other wildlife would be surprised maybe that working farms can help that habitat. I guess how important is it to show that you can have particularly livestock in a natural habitat situation? You were saying when you drive around the landscape, you look at some of these pieces and, you know, even a working farm's landscape can really be good habitat. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the more marginal acres on farms tend to be wooded. And what I really like about the silvopasture system is that it's reintegrating. It's it's allowing people to 
interact with those parts of the farm and paying attention and observing and clearing out the invasives and creating space for for humans, for livestock, for other wildlife to move through there in ways that have just those landscape parts of the landscape have sometimes just been ignored and they create these thickets that are impenetrable and I think that's an effect of the way we've been farming lately is just farming the cropland and ignoring the rest of the, the acres. For more on the role regenerative farming can play in creating and supporting pollinator habitat, see the podcast page for episode number 261 at landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-816-9342. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.